wrote a column over the weekend about how we refused to settle a lawsuit with a man who paid to have sex with a 15-year-old. He claimed we defamed him, which the whole point of the column was you can't really harm the reputation of somebody who does that. The reader response was interesting. The people were celebrating that we didn't settle. They didn't, that even though it costs more to, to go, go the mat, they were glad we didn't settle because they didn't want to see somebody like this profit. And several said they had had similar cases in which their insurance companies settled cases where they were clearly in the right because it was cheaper. And they said, this is a huge problem in America. Very interesting reaction to that story. They appreciated us standing on principle, even though it cost us extra money. It's today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla Atassi and Lisa Garvin. Laura Johnston says she's coming back Wednesday. We'll have to see if the airlines accommodate her. Let's begin. Mike DeWine vetoed a transgender bill over the holidays, getting lots of attention for his conscious-driven decision. But on Friday, he signed an executive order involving transgender children that many people said goes further than the thing he vetoed. Layla, what does the order do? How is it different from what he vetoed? Well, De- DeWine signed an emergency order Friday that bans minors with gender dysphoria from receiving gender-affirming surgeries. And that comes on the heels of that veto of House Bill 68, which sought to ban minors from having any gender-affirming care at all and would also ban trans athletes from participating in girls' sports. The House needs 60% to override that veto, and they're going to meet this week to decide whether they're going to do that. Perhaps DeWine is hoping this new executive order will satisfy them enough that they won't go down that road. But DeWine, you know, he felt compelled to veto that bill because he spoke to many parents who said their kids wouldn't have survived adolescence without gender-affirming care and and puberty-blocking therapy. And he decided that parents know what's best for their kids. He was comfortable with that decision also uh, because giving puberty suppressing drugs to adolescents while they consider their gender identity in their formative years, it, it turns out that's reversible. Then once they get to the age of 16 or so, when they're considered more capable of making sound decisions, clinicians can add either feminizing or masculinizing hormones to their treatment that will help them achieve the proper gender identity. Along with his emergency rule against gender surgeries for minors, he has proposed a number of non-emergency rules. Those include requiring a multidisciplinary team to support people receiving gender-affirming care, including a bioethicist, a psychiatrist, and an endocrinologist. The rules also would require a comprehensive care plan that includes sufficient informed consent from patients and And if the patient is a minor, it has to be their parents. This includes explanations of the risk and extensive mental health counseling. And clinics that offer gender-affirming care also would have to report cases of gender dysphoria and any subsequent treatments received by the patient uh, reported in a way that protects patient privacy, of course, but but still. So is his reasoning that because the surgery is irreversible or pretty much irreversible, he doesn't think children should do it, even if the parents approve. And so he's going to block it until they're adults and make the decisions on their own. That's what that's certainly what it seems. Right. I think I think he is against any kind of uh, any any kind of gender affirming care that that is m- more permanent in nature or harder to reverse of c- administering the hormones that actually do kind of set set one's gender more firmly in place. I think he's 
he's against that. He, I'm assuming he he believes that kids, as they're in their early adolescence, uh, you know, their brains are still forming and they're still kind of figuring out their way in the world. And he probably thinks that it's okay to suppress their their puberty while they're figuring that out. But going the extra step when they're too young is uh, is too much too soon. And he wants to govern that. I'm perfectly okay with that, quite honestly. I am. It, well, it's a fascinating debate in that, you know, when you're a kid, you really don't know what you're doing. We talk about that even at 18, you still don't know what you're doing. That for, for at least for boys, the brain's still developing into the mid to late 20s. We see that with all the wild gun violence in Cleveland, people just going nuts. So I guess protecting kids about from making those decisions that they may come to regret is what this is about. I, I don't have any problem with the battery of people that he wants to counsel when these decisions are made either, because you would hope that people making these kinds of decisions are fully aware of all of the ramifications. We've all been through medical procedures where you're doing your own research because you want to make sure you understand what's going on. This is as big as it gets when it comes to medical decisions. So forcing the information is not a terrible thing, right? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's, what's the harm of, of more information? None. Uh, but yeah, I guess I, I can't, can't begin to understand what it's like to be an adolescent who's experiencing these feelings. So I can't say, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of someone who's gone through the tr this transition and has said, I regret doing that. Um, oh, usually by I the do. time they do that, it's a completely, you know, they, they've, it's, it's something they've felt uh, in in their heart, their whole life is what they say. Typically, I I don't know. I, I can't comment on on whether I think that's a, you know that that allowing people to prolong that is good or bad. Well, back in the eighties, I knew a couple of people who cha had changed had sexual changes, you know, sexual change, uh, surgical sexual change. And back then it was so extremely rare and they really made you go through rigorous counseling before you ever went under the knife. And I also knew somebody who committed suicide after mm. their transition because it's like, oops, this isn't really what I wanted. Really? That's that happened. Yes. Like that was the reason, or was it because it was culturally unacceptable? I, and they had a hard I, life. I, no, I think they regretted their decision. But look, 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 the other thing here is everybody who goes through adolescence has wild yearnings. I mean, a lot of adolescents are yearning just to get to adulthood to get rid of the yoke of their parents, but you don't because you're an adolescent. You don't know what you're doing, and so it makes sense for society as the whole to help guide adolescents into adulthood, which is sounds like is what Mike DeWine's trying to do here. Uh, it's very controversial. He was criticized mightily for it. So many people claimed he was being hypocritical. He vetoes it, and then he kind of does it. Um, uh, just it's just another another wrinkle in this case that is causing a lot of conversation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Mike DeWine has also pushed through a plan to overhaul how the state teaches reading with a focus back on phonics. Who is suing the Blockham and why, Lisa? So this lawsuit was filed by the Reading Recovery Council of North America, which is based in, in Columbus. And they, you know, uh, have their little uh, curriculum that they 
you know, sponsor at several schools across the nation. They filed a lawsuit challenging the legislature's mandate for schools to teach the science of reading by the 2024-25 school year. They're asking Franklin County Judge Karen Held Phipps to toss that requirement, allowing school districts to teach any combination of reading approaches. The trial date is set for October 28th of this year. Of course, DeWine's initiative from his 2023 State of the State address inserted into the two-year budget last summer. And so there's $162 million for training and instructional materials for what they call um, the science of reading. So the lawsuit says this actually violates the single subject rule of the Ohio Constitution because it was inserted into the budget. And they say that reading requirements should be done by the Board of Education and not lawmakers. And it violates a 1953 constitutional amendment that created the Board of Education in the first place. Except when that was created, it did say that the board would carry out the will of the legislature. So I'm not sure where they're coming up with that argument. Look, their single subject argument is right on the money. We should have had a statewide debate about this. This should have been a bill. It should have gone through hearings. We should have all talked about it. But ultimately, even if it did, I'm pretty sure the legislature would have passed it. So we'd end up in the same place. They're fighting this on technicalities, but ultimately the state has the ability to do this. But as when I when we talked about this when it passed, I thought it wasn't mandatory. They were just providing a whole lot of money to districts that made the switch. Right. I I didn't realize it was a mandate myself. Um, and this group, the the Reading Recovery Council of North America, they're part of they, they uh, you know, proffer this program, Reading Recovery, which helps readers who are behind, and it's called Three Queuing, so or also Balanced literary, Literacy or Whole Language. And they, what they do, they if kids are struggling with a word, they consider the story and the pictures for context. They look at how sentences are ordered for syntax, and they break down words by sound and use phonics to decode the word, whereas the science of reading leans really heavily on phonics and vocabulary lessons. I know, and a lot of people of our generation who grew up on phonics always wondered, why did they go away from phonics? It does sound like every kid is different, and as we discussed when this was in the news, you've really got to focus on the needs of the kid. I just, the lawsuit... The, the lawsuit could, I guess, be successful on the single subject rule. But even if it is, the legislature will just go back and pass this. This is going to happen. So in the end, what's the real point? You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's been done elsewhere, like in Columbus. And now Justin Bibb wants to do it here. Reporter Steve Litt did a deep dive on the plan to turn downtown Cleveland into a special taxing district to raise money for all the waterfront projects we often discuss. Layla, what did Steve tell us? Yeah, this is this is the giant tax increment finance district proposal that if, if it all goes according to plan, Bib is supposed to introduce this to city council today as they get back from their, their winter break. We've heard a great deal about Bib's ambitious plan for lakefront and riverfront development. We're talking about a 20-acre park and, and more than 900,000 square feet of development. Dan Gilbert, who owns the Cavs and, and runs the real estate company Bedrock, has assembled more than 4 million square feet in 11 properties in downtown Cleveland, including Tower City Center. And he's, he's poised to do more. Last fall, Bedrock signed a master development agreement with the city to build a 3.5 million square foot community along the Cuyahoga River west of Tower City. This, the city, in turn, 
has pledged to pave the way for the project by rebuilding roads, utilities, bulkheads, and turning the waterfront from basically a giant parking lot into 12 acres of beautiful parks and promenades, all of which would cost potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. So to meet those obligations, the city promised to create this new TIF district. The city has done TIFs before, of course. A TIF, TIF stands for tax increment financing, and it means that a portion of the increase in property taxes that results from private development within a defined area gets diverted to pay for public infrastructure that would theoretically support that development and then spur additional growth. Typically, when it's been used in Cleveland, the money kind of generated from the TIF stays within you know, the footprint of the project. But this legislation that's being introduced today takes TIF to a new level that's been that's unprecedented in Cleveland. It creates a giant TIF district downtown that would capture all of the increases in property tax revenue on account of this incredibly ambitious waterfront development plan, which can be used to invest in additional projects, presumably not only downtown, but elsewhere in the city. In other words, it's this upward cycle of growth. And, you know, as some say, this this plan is so bold that it could have the the big bang potential that Cleveland really needs to finally achieve these big plans that so many administrations before Bibbs have really only talked about. So the new TIF overlay district could generate $3.3 billion to $7.5 billion over 42 years. So now it'll be up to city council. They're going to vet this. Uh, they're going to examine it through probably, I'm sure, an equity lens to determine if this rising tide really would raise all boats or or if it'll be mainly a boon for downtown developers. It's in their hands. There's two sides to this coin. The the On the downside, when we pay for things like libraries and health and human services and all the countywide taxes that are, that are from property taxes, the whole thought is that the revenue goes up as the value of our real estate rises and everybody pays their share. This would take Cleveland out of that equation. This enormous increase in value in the downtown core would not pay its share, which means the rest of us would have to cover the increases in the cost of all these very important services that the county largely handles. That's something that needs to be discussed here because this really does take Cleveland out of the equation. On the other side, you got to look at Gilbert, right? Gilbert has been the hero of Detroit. He bought Mm -hmm. up enormous tracts Mm -hmm. in Detroit, has turned that downtown into just an example for the whole country. And he, he did it on his own. He did it by, by pushing and working. He wants to do that in Cleveland. He made clear his two cities where he wants to focus his development expertise and vision are in Cleveland. And he needs this help to do it. So if we want to get this beautiful vision of a downtown where all can come and recreate and and we have Gilbert willing to bring the Detroit vision here, that really speaks to moving forward with it. So it's a this is a tough debate. Yeah. I should say Steve Litt plans on visiting Detroit sometime as this debate is unfolding here in Cleveland and bringing us details of what that looks like, how it, how successful it's been and and uh you know what kinds of community conversations have have percolated around that. So look forward to that. Uh but but you know also it's interesting Steve did talk to a number of the institutions that would be affected by diverting this tax revenue into you know, it, it back into the city coffers for for these big catalytic projects, and it did seem like they were looking at the the, the long view. You know, I think they they recognize um, that 
in the short term could hurt. Uh, but but also, you know, without that tiff, d- does any of this ever happen? Mm. You know, do we see the growth at all? And if not, then then you're not getting that tax revenue anyway for your institutions. Well, Ayla, forget the institutions. You got to think about the suburban taxpayer. They're going to pay more as a result of this, and they have no say. Cleveland can unilaterally do this because state law allows it and divert money away from the things the rest of us have to pay for. That's what the problem is, is you there are constituents here who don't get a voice in this thing. And I think Steve writing this story helps them understand it. There's been a lot written about Detroit. I mean, you can see it. The, the, The complaint about Detroit is it really didn't help a lot of the neighborhoods outside of downtown but that the downtown has become wonderful. Anybody that's visited Detroit in the last four or five years can see it. It's, it is very, very well put together. It's safe. It's easy to get in and out of. It's walkable. I mean, it, it is something special. They've managed there. It'd be wonderful to have it here. But shouldn't everybody participate in this conversation? What's interesting is that, you know, within the city of Cleveland, often the debate boils down to isn't downtown improvement basically for the sake of the suburbanite? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because people in the neighborhoods, they, they're not going often to enjoy those amenities the way suburban people come downtown to be a tourist and so, or to come to work or what have you. So it's interesting that you're bringing this up as, as, as in suburbanites, you know, don't, that they would resent having to pay into projects like this when people in the city argue that these projects aren't just for their benefit. <laughs> and everybody then should be part of that conversation. The way our government set is set up is bad. That's why we should have a regional city. Cuyahoga County should be the city of Cleveland, and we should stop this balkanization and this nonsense. Anyway, Steve Litt set up the conversation. We've needed a package like this so that everybody could level set. We all know where we stand. Now let's start talking. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sabrina Eaton examined a troubling trend of threats against members of Congress in our polarized times. Lisa, how bad is it getting? It's pretty bad. Uh, The Capitol Police Department, which protects our Congress members while they're in Washington, they said they got 7,501 threats against Congress members in 2022. And it was really high right after January 6th of 2021 when the insurrection broke out. There were 9,600 threats just after, you know, January 6th on 2021. These numbers have increased just about every year since 2016 when that was only 902 threats back then. But they say the threats are roughly equal between, you know, against Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Um, they, Sabrina looked at a couple of different surveys. One was done by the U.S. Association of Former Congress Members last year. Um, they did a survey on political violence. They got 277 responses. 47 percent of the respondents say they received threats, 69 percent if they were women or people of color. And then uh, the threats were that about 48 percent of Republican Congress members got threats to 45 percent of Democrats. So pretty much even. Um, They say that people that are recently elected to office were more likely to face threats, especially to their family and their staff. A second study, the Public Religion Research Institute, did a poll of 2,500 Americans last August. 33% agree that um, 
violence might be, 33% of Republicans agree that violence might be necessary to save the country compared to 22% of independents and 13% of Democrats. Look, let's face it. This is a result of the Donald Trump era. Donald Trump exhorted people to violence three years ago on January 6th. He uses violent imagery in his talks, and so do people in his party. You know, Jim Jordan is one of the victims of the the threats, but Jim Jordan also is one of the most polarizing figures. If all of our elected leaders would return to civility, I think the, the, the threats would drop. This is partly a product of their language and their fire and brimstone. Well, and, and Capitol Police uh, consulting psychologist Mario Scalora says social media is to blame. And of course, Trump, you know, weaponized that quite effectively. And he says, we really can't arrest our way out of this. If theories, you know, float across social media and people are in their little bubbles, he says there's really no way to, to deal with that. We need to stop talking like we're Nazis in the 1930s Germany the way Donald Trump is. We've got to get back to be leaders have to lead by example and stop using the confrontational mean spirited language because that is exhorting people to make these threats. It's not a surprise we're here. It's interesting that some of the Congress people talk like they're victims when they are the some cause of this. They have the power to tone it down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, weather nerds, here's a talker. Zachary Smith looked at the low temperatures throughout last winter. Lisa, when was the last time the lowest temperature of winter was as high as it was last winter? Yeah, there's a lot of statistics thrown around here. So in 2022, uh, they, you know, overnight low temperatures are just starting to go, you know, are just going up. They never reached single digits last year. That's the first time in 85 years of record keeping at Hopkins International Airport. So uh, last year, 12 degrees was the lowest overnight low. It was February 3rd and 4th. That's the second warmest overnight low on record. Average winter temps in the Cleveland area have increased about 5.2 degrees since 1970 during the daytime, and they've increased 9.9 degrees in overnight temperatures. Now, warm overnight temperatures have occurred before. It's kind of cyclical, but they mostly occurred between 1909 and 1941. The coldest overnight low ever recorded in this area, at least from Hopkins, was negative 23 degrees in 1994. The best imagery you can have to really imagine what this is like. If you've ever seen any pictures from back in the day of them cutting ice blocks out of Lake Erie, Mm -hmm. and you think about that we have really almost no ice on any of the Great Lakes this year, that's how far we've come. It used to be you'd have vehicles out there hauling up these big ice blocks, and now nothing. Uh, Just This was a great way to look at it, though, because decades and decades we had never hit what we were talking about last winter. We're finally mm-hmm. getting a little cold now, but still nothing, nothing. Right. Cold. And they're not sure if it's an El Nino because El Nino is a warming of, you know, ocean currents. It usually causes warmer and drier weather for our area. But every other strong El Nino winter in modern times had overnight lows b- below zero. 1972, 82, 91, and in 2015. And also the lack of snow is, they researchers say that might be the more likely culprit is that we just are not having a lot of snow. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo. I'm not upset. <laughs> Interesting look by Zachary. It's on cleveland.com. 
you're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last year about Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin's clumsy shutting down of a commenter in a council meeting, resulting in a much-deserved First Amendment lawsuit. Griffin suddenly has altered his policy, at least temporarily. Layla, what's the news here? This came about as part of a temporary truce with a group that's suing council over their public comment policy that this group believes stifles free speech. The lawsuit came about after a guy named Chris Martin had taken to the microphone during the public comment period of a council meeting and began making a statement about how much money council members get from the council leadership fund, which is controlled by council president Blaine Griffin. And he started naming council members and the amount of money they've gotten from the fund. And Griffin told him he better stop naming members and impugning their character. And and when he didn't, Griffin cut the guy's mic. So he he sued with the backing of the Case Western Reserve First Amendment Clinic. Now, as part of this temporary agreement they've reached with the judge's blessing, council has rolled back about half a dozen restrictions that were previously on public com- on the public comment period rule book here. The, the agreement lasts only until a future ruling on the legality of council's rules or if council changes its rules. The agreement means council can no longer restrict comments deemed disruptive or distracting or indecent or discriminatory. It can't, and council uh, can not require speakers to address only what they registered to talk about. They can't stop people from addressing individual council members, and they can't ban signs from council chambers. But they can still have speakers pre-register before speaking at a meeting. They can limit the public comment to 10 speakers, and they can limit each speaker to only three minutes. So that's the extent of the limitations. But as far as all the stuff that was kind of you know, completely up to the discretion of council to decide whether your speech is appropriate for that setting, that's been nixed for the time being. I, I guess I'm interpreting this as it was likely there was going to be an injunction issued uh, as this case progressed. So city council just caved. Why else would they do it if they're going to yeah. continue duking it out in the court case? Right. Maybe maybe the yeah, and maybe the injunction would have been worse. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I, how else that could have played out. I don't think they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Because if they were, they would just do it. They would settle this thing. They would they would fix it. But they're going to continue to fight. So this tells me they were just trying to avoid getting slapped silly by a judge with an injunction. It's a small step, but at least for now, people will be able to speak freely. You know, they'll be able to criticize their elected leaders or name them as having been the beneficiaries of Blaine. Griffin's largesse with the city council campaign fund. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Renane announced he was creating a sheriff's office team to patrol downtown, we wondered what they would do because we already have Cleveland police and other other things downtown. Turns out, Lisa, they did a lot. What has the team been up to? Yeah, they really did. And of course, you know, we had kind of a violent summer downtown in Cleveland last year. So the city actually reached out to Chris Ronane and the county sheriff's department for help after a July 9th shooting on West 6th Street that wounded nine people. So Ronane created the Downtown Safety Patrol to combat rising violence. They seized 114 guns since August. They seized over $100,000 in cash, made 33 felony arrests, and over 1,900 traffic stops issuing 382 citations. So they were very effective. 
I, I, I was stunned by the number of guns. I mean, just think, those, those, those were all downtown. They were all illegal, and they shouldn't mm-hmm. have been there. It's like, mm-hmm. holy moly, what's going on downtown? I, the story doesn't say it, but I've got to think they were using some license plate readers. That's become a very common tool for police. Mm-hmm. They put these things out that scan your license plate as you drive by, and if you're wanted, it pops up on an alert, and they can come pick you up. I suspect they were using that as people drove through downtown to get people, but- I don't know how you could look at this as anything but a big success in a very short period of time. They yanked a lot of guns and some pretty bad people off the street. And this is, you know, apart from what the state highway patrol did when they came into town, you know, at Bibb's request for Mike DeWine sending them here. So that's a separate effort that also was very successful. Yeah. And look, you could see in the latter half of last year, all these efforts did temper the wild, wild west that we had in Cleveland in the first half of the year. It was good to see all of these agencies come together. And credit to Chris Ronane, it worked. He did a good thing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Finally, another in a long line of Kia cars was stolen in Northeast Ohio over the New Year's weekend, but this one had a twist of irony to it. Layla, why? This really sucks. I mean, there's really no way other way to say it. Our reporter, Molly Walsh, who is just about the loveliest, kindest person you'd ever meet, had her 2020 Kia Forte stolen on December 30th while she was visiting with a friend in the Ohio City neighborhood in Cleveland. And the irony of that, of course, is that Molly has written a great deal this past year about the terrible trend of stolen Kias, how flaws in the design of these cars have made them exceptionally vulnerable to theft, and and then the rise of the gang known as the Kia Boys. Poor Molly, man. She bought this car in July 2022. She saved up to put $2,000 on a down payment on it and had been paying $320 every month just to chip away at that car debt. And the car hasn't been found. So in its absence, she is just stuck continuing to pay on it. Mm. And in her personal account of the aftermath of this, she described how she had to go to the Cleveland Police's second district to file a police report because, you know, as as everyone knows, that's how they do it. Cleveland cops are just way too busy and they're understaffed to come out and vis- investigate a stolen car. So you have to come in and file a report yourself. And that's that's a hard, hard thing to have to do. But beyond that, she talks about how how she really gets it now. She has the full spectrum of empathy for people who have experienced this. And she describes in really kind of heartbreaking detail that feeling of of violation, knowing that someone might be going through your personal items or using your your vehicle to harm someone else, maybe even. And, you know, God bless her, her, her narrative takes another turn when she says that as the days pass, she feels less terrible for herself and more compassion for the people who took her car who likely had fewer means and resources than she has. I thought that was a really touching part of her of her story. Why do you have to go into the police station to file a report? Why isn't there an online portal? I mean, it, it's just so ridiculous. You're going in to fill out a piece of paper. Why can't you do it online? Why aren't we not making this easier for the people of Cleveland? It's a, it's a, it's a great point. It's just, I mean, in, of course, in every other city uh, around here, cops would come to you. Right, but, do, but I get it, they can't. But if it's just a matter of filling out the report, why can't you do it online? It, you know, And if you miss something, they could email it back to you and say, hey, you didn't fill it out right. It, it's just another way that the city has not modernized. Justin Bibb keeps saying he's going to modernize it. Hopefully he'll get to that. Molly does plan some follows. She heard from a great number of people 
who had commiseration and experiences. So she's mm-hmm. going to write about that. And then she's going to write about the aftermath because so many people now want to know how this story ends if her car ever turns up. So we'll have to see. It's a good piece by Molly. Very sincere. It's on cleveland.com. That's it for the Monday episode of Today in Ohio. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Please come back Tuesday when we'll be talking about the latest news. 